0: You're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix, Arizona that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Welcome to uh, another frigid Lent evening. Every now and then, personally, I encounter this, this urge within myself to boldly acknowledge that I don't have a clue, like a clue about anything. Which, as you're all gracing me, the the gift of serving as one of your pastors, this might be completely disorienting or even simultaneously reassuring because maybe together we don't have a clue. And I guess that's my point. My point is most of us don't have a clue about anything, but man, we are trying so hard to sort it all out trying to, to find a, a capital P path or a, a capital A anchor, right? Or a, a capital S source or a capital V voice. For some of us, this capital G, God is ever present, powerfully near, maybe even audible. For others of us though, it seems as if God maybe ditched us a long time ago in some sneaky escape From our lives, or maybe we're just sitting here tonight in these chairs, numb, like not just cold, numb, but like numb, numb, right? Breathing, but feeling a bit like a zombie going through the motions of everyday life. So, in boldly acknowledging that I, your pastor, the carrier of seminary credits, and the one whose days comprise of preaching and praying and listening, might not always have a clue that should spark a question among us. the hell are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? See, here's what I'm proposing. I'm relatively prepared, but here's what I'm proposing. We tell the truth we just told. And you can add in your truth to all of that too. And then we say, God, if you are who you say you are, and help us out. Or maybe for our purposes on this Sunday, the very last day of February 2021, we can frame it this way and it'll make it all a bit more poignant. We could pray the prayer, Jesus, if you were here today, what would you say to us? Jesus, if you were here today, what would you want to say to us? And so if you'll allow me to read the passage for the second Sunday of Lent, which doesn't involve Jesus, it's from Genesis, actually. And then we'll, perhaps we can ask this question again. We'll pray it out loud here, I'll say it, and we'll sit here in this moment and then we'll move forward accordingly. Now, I don't anticipate that like some nuts thing's gonna break out and I've got a direction for us planned, but I think we're just all gonna pause in a place like this and we're gonna ask the question, Jesus, if you were here right now, standing here before us, what would you want to say to us? We'll create some space for that. So here's the passage for today. Genesis 17, 1 through 7, including verses 15 and 16. It reads like this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life. I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this Abram fell face down on the ground. Then God said to him, This is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Then God said to Abraham, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will become her descendants. So let's pray. Jesus, if you were here today, what would you want to say to us? Jesus, maybe you're speaking to us right now. Give us ears to hear. What I do know, and what sounds like something you would say to us, is that we are loved. We need each other. And you desire to meet us here way more than we could ever. Desire it ourselves. We acknowledge we don't have a clue. So we need you to help us out. Speak to us, Jesus, tonight. We love you. Your name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know what you heard or what you'll continue to hear, but I believe that Jesus will keep speaking and something will keep moving through each one of us. And it won't be just for our own individual purposes. It will be to draw us together as the people of God. So I'm going to try to make my way through this passage in Genesis, paying special attention to the voice of Jesus. Here's how it starts out again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life, and I will make a covenant with you by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. So what's interesting is that this is the third time in Genesis that God is announcing his intention to form a covenant with Abram and all the generations to follow. In the earlier passages involving Abram, though, what's interesting is that he's simply just a a passive recipient of God's unilateral obligation. He's just like, God's like, this is what's going to happen. Sit tight. But now, the third time, God is summoning him to be an active partner in the covenant. And this active partnership looks like this. It's God saying to Abram, walk in my ways. Our translation that we just read said, serve faithfully. The Hebrew of that would be walk in my ways, which again sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Walk in my ways to serve God faithfully. The details of this whole encounter in Genesis 17 are are Pretty intriguing, actually. Because during Abram's first encounter with God, 24 years prior, Abram and his family listened to God and they left home, which was unheard of. He was 75 years old. That's older than anybody out here right now. At the age of 86, Abram and Sarai took matters into their own hands. So 11 years later, And they try to execute God's plan in a bit different way. Sarah forces Hagar to sleep with Abram. There's a lot of terrible stuff going on there. You can check that out in Genesis 16. But Hagar, the slave of Sarai, gives birth to a son named Ishmael. But now here we are and Abram is 99 and Sarai is 90. Which is really old if you didn't know. And the promise God made seems like ages and actions ago. Which, if you just like pause for one second, can you resonate with that at all? That there's something that God said to you or said to the people you know, and it's just time, 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 time. What, God? That's why we're asking the question, Jesus, if you were here tonight, what would you want to say to us? Because we need to be reminded of the things that God's already been saying. So here God is, the third time speaking to them. And apparently during this 24-year span, like any number of things could happen, right, for 24 years. And during this 24-year span, it's generally understood that this aging couple had been learning to trust God. Which ironically means that they failed and did a bunch of terrible things in the meantime, which is a wild story in and of itself. And yet, without any clue of what God was up to, they strive to remain faithful. This old couple is deeply flawed yet, so the story goes. They're faithful to God and God's promise in a way that honestly, we just tend to struggle to understand because there's a whole lot of crap that goes down, right? The thing with Hagar, which is a whole sermon of its own. Not to mention that as they're traveling a couple different times, one, they set up a plan where together they hand off Sarah, the king of the land. And the other time, Abram does it himself. Like it's, they're just, they're just not the, they're not the best two people in the world, but apparently they're being faithful. And that doesn't make sense to us. Doesn't make sense to me. You could even say, I don't have a clue. But for some reason, God shows up again 24 years later, announcing himself, which I'll get to in a second. And here is how Abram responds. 99-year-old Abram, 24 years after the initial promise, verse three, at this, Abram fell face down on the ground. He Falls face down in what appears to be humble submission to the reverence of God. And I think it bears stating that this actually is like an honest reaction to God's presence. He's overcome by this encounter. Now, I often find myself simply bewildered in God's presence. Like, I don't know what to do with my hands, right? Like that sort of thing. And here he is, false face. Now, maybe that's what we need to do. We need to spend more time on our face. But then God speaks again, here's what he said. God says this, this is my covenant with you. And now I, I think Abram still might be face down on the ground, all right? So just envision that, the way in which he hears this from God face down on the ground. God says, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham for you will be the father of many nations. I will make you extremely fruitful Your descendants will become many nations and kings will be among them. I will confirm my covenant with you and your descendants after you from generation to generation. This is the everlasting covenant. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. All right, what's going on here? This old haggard couple receives this divine renewal of the covenant. That God was always going to be for them and with them and use them and partnering with them. And it's a couple of people who then get like these barely different new names. Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah. Like, oh, cool, God, creative. Right? You added a letter. Right? But I'm going to get to the names in a second. But the reiteration of the covenant is this. It's, this is what this is about. It's to reaffirm God's promise. The thing that God's always been saying from the beginning, it's to reaffirm God's blessing, to reaffirm God's commandments, to reaffirm God's freedom granted to the people through Abraham. And I agree, it doesn't really make any sense that it's taken 24 years to get to this place and nothing has really unfolded in the meantime. But what's interesting now is that God is initiating the fellowship with his people. This is what God is like. The initiator of being with us, of partnering with us, of enduring with us. Maybe it wasn't about what God was going to accomplish all along. God will get to that when God gets to that, because that seems to be the way God goes. And in all of this, if you're Abram and Sarah and you're 99 and 90, God's timing in this is annoying, I guess, is probably how I would describe that. It's annoying. It's annoying. Have you ever waited 24 years for a promise to unfold? It's interesting though, because Jesus seemed to wait a long time before he got started too. You got the whole incarnation. Jesus gets born, right? The, the Virgin Mary, it's, it's, a, it's this immaculate conception. The shepherds are quaking, it's wild. Herod's freaked out, people are dying, it's nuts. And then it's like, okay. silence till Jesus turns 30. You're like, come on, God, let's go, right? He's got these disciples, they bumble around for a good period of time, not accomplishing much at all. You're like, what, this is what you got going, Jesus? Then here's Abram. Here's this when he's 75, and now he's 99, and we still don't know what God is up to. Like, they literally still don't even know. They have zero children together, 99 and 90. And I mean, as frustrating as that might be, here we are, humans in 2021, a church in downtown Phoenix, in downtown Phoenix where the median age is 32, and all of us here are in pursuit of careers and dreams and productivity, but bound up in all of this, according to this story, is that we're actually only defined by our faithfulness to God, not our productivity. And you're like, that's a terrible story. Here we are clamoring for results. If only we could produce this dream that's at our fingertips. And God's like, hey, just be faithful. And we're like, I don't even know what that means. And that's why I don't have a clue. I'm gonna keep going because we're gonna get back to the names. And this is my favorite part. Here we go. This is what God says. He says, what's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you'll be called Abraham which again is not the most amazing change in regards to Sarai. No longer be Sarai, it'll be Sarah. So first, one thing to note from Genesis 17, Barbara Brown Taylor puts it like this. She says, for once in Genesis 17, Sarah's participation is neither assumed nor implied. Now God makes her a full partner in this enterprise, both by giving her a name and by promising her a blessing of her own. And you know what's even more crazy about that? She was the one, just one chapter before that set the whole thing up with Hagar. And now God's like, all right, you messed that up, but we're still gonna allow you to participate in this. I'm like, what? So for both Sarah and Abraham, a new name, what does it signal? It signals a new purpose. As God changes their names, it signals that both the ripeness of the relationship was always there and so was its permanence. This is always what God had in mind for them. He needed to change their names so that they would remember it, so they would know it. In the psychology of the ancient Near Eastern world, even the names mean something. We see a couple letters change. But there, a name was not merely a convenient means of identification. It wasn't just what we called people so that we could get them to come to us. It was ultimately bound up in the very essence of being. It was inextricably intertwined with their personality. Their name defined them. And so when God grants them a new one, it goes even deeper than the letter change and the identity change. He says, this is who you are which is fitting that God would do this because God himself doesn't get left out in the naming. In Genesis chapter 16, again, the chapter right before this, Hagar, Sarah's slave, who's forced to sleep with Abraham, goes out on the run because Sarah's abusing her and she encounters God at a spring and she names God. She gives God a new name. She says, God, your name is now the God who sees me, which is a really great name. God appreciated that. And then in the next chapter, which is like four verses later, but apparently a bunch of years later, God names himself El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the first time God refers to himself by this name in Torah. God's just given everybody a new name. God himself, Sarah, Abraham, you might even get a new name tonight. The powerful picture of Abraham and Sarah joining God as active participants in the covenant, they're all graced with a new name. God says, we're all doing this together. It's like they got group tattoos, right? Jesus, in fact, himself says he will call each of his sheep by name. John 10, he's going to call each of us by name. Jesus knows your name. Six times in the gospel of John, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And at first we're like... The audacity, the disciple whom Jesus loved. What? Come on, John, get a clue, right? But in light of all we're unpacking here with how we're named by God, it would seem to me that John is actually so secure in who he is in the presence of Jesus that he actually can't even help but say, hey, this is just how it is, everybody. The guy loves me. What can I say? And even now when I say it like that, it's still a bit appalling to us that he refers to himself that way. In my own life, trying to sort out that Jesus might actually love me and might actually know my name, it led me to a summer of asking, Jesus, what do you call me? My parents named me Chris, but Jesus, what do you call me? It didn't take him 24 years to answer, but he did. I sat in my backyard where I'd asked a question all summer long, and I wrote a poem about it. I'm going to share that with you. This is a poem I wrote called "Backyard Identity." I asked, but you wouldn't say, or maybe you were hard to hear over the train horn staccatos and the frantic Fillmore fire truck siren and the always hovering police helicopter. I asked, but you wouldn't say, or maybe you said it like the sound of shoes crunching on gravel or a curve-billed thrasher in the dead oak tree or the jazz ensemble five blocks away. I asked, but you wouldn't say, or maybe I shouted this time over the neighborhood gunshot pop and the karaoke from the quinceanera and the garbage truck fumbling a dumpster in the alley. Screw it. Why did I ask you anyway? I took my dog on a path walking, and maybe all the sounds transformed to a hushed, gentle whisper. And I couldn't make out the words. I leaned in close, feeling your breath and an exhale. You are a transformative pathwalker. So apparently, that's my name. Interesting, huh? So, moving on from a poem to an omitted section of the lectionary. There's this interesting thing, and you might've noticed it if you looked at the text already. I didn't read verses nine or eight through 14. Where did they go? Why didn't we have those read today? It's interesting that it omits this part because now I'm gonna insert it back into the conversation. You see that the first two iterations of the covenant that God makes with Abram They're largely concerned with what God will do for Abram. That God will show him a new land, will make him a great nation, will bless him and make his name great. God will give him descendants as numerous as the stars. It's like, wow, God's going to do all that. But only here in Genesis 17 does God mention what Abraham and his descendants will do for God. You know what they're going to do? Every male is going to get circumcised. Luckies. To resist this is to break the covenant. What? I told you, I don't have a clue. We don't know why precisely the whole circumcision bit is even a thing. Just add it to the questions that people have been asking for centuries and generations in which they go, I don't have a clue. But what we do know is this, Abraham is about to become bodily involved with the covenant that God has set before him. He's gonna get real committed. And Barbara Brown Taylor says it like this. She says, on the second Sunday of Lent, this point merits attention. We do not head straight to Easter from the spa or the shopping mall. Instead, we're invited to spend 40 days examining the nature of our own covenant with God. Upon what does this relationship depend What do we trust to give us life? What concrete practices allow us to become bodily involved with God? If we were to ask God for a new name, she says, what might that name be and what new purpose might that name signify? While Lent focuses naturally on the example of Jesus, Jesus himself actually Focused on the example of Abraham, like his forebearer in the faith, Jesus walked toward God's promise with steady trust. Leading God to give him a new name. God says to him on a couple different occasions that you are my son, my beloved. You bring me Joy. And in the case of Abraham, 24 years later, he still says, thy will, but not my will. A link Jesus will flesh out in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. And the theme of Lent is actually then to repent from our will and align it with God's. Which leads us to asking the question, Jesus, if you were here tonight, what would you want to say? to us. Upon what does that relationship depend? What do we trust to give us life? What concrete practices allow us to become bodily involved with God? If we were to ask God for a new name, what might that name be? What new purpose might it signify? Each Sunday in Lent is like this story. This is who God is. This is what God is going to do. And this is what God has promised. And often we sit here and we throw our hands up and we're like, but we don't have a clue. So we listen and we wait and we listen and we wait. Howard Thurman teaches us that we cannot be in a hurry in the matters of the heart. The human spirit has to be explored gently and with unhurried tenderness. So with all that before us this evening, I'm going to invite us to sit silently with Jesus, unhurried, perhaps even uncomfortable, cold and waiting, our minds wandering, but center them back to the place where we ask the question of Jesus. Jesus, if you were here today, what would you want to say to us? Welcome to the silence. Recenter center yourself one more time and ask the question, Jesus, if you were here standing before us right now, what would you want to say to us? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who initiates fellowship with us. Give us ears to hear you, ears to hear you in the wind that's blowing, the children that are laughing the city that is moving around us. Give us eyes to see you in the eyes of another, in the midst of our relationships, even in those we might deem our enemies. Give us hearts to receive what it is you want to unfold within us. May we be malleable to your transformation, God. Open up our minds to comprehend the expansiveness of your love for us, your glory your splendor. And open up our very bodies to feel your presence, to experience your presence in a tangible way this evening. Warm us in the midst of a chilly evening so that we might be reminded that you are the God who looks at us and loves us as we are. And God, we thank you that you are a God who looks at us and loves us as we are and invites us to an active participation with what you're up to in this world. Give us patience as we wait. Grant us faithfulness as we wait. And join us together as the family of God. As we leave this place full of your spirit, less of ourselves and more of you. To you be the glory, God. We love you. your name we pray. For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.